Good morning, everyone. If you're a visitor here, not only are you welcome, but you're wanted and you're needed in this congregation to help us fulfill the task that God has given us to reach our community. MRAC is a church on the move and um, a lot of changes, but you know, COVID came, so we can't stay the same. It's time to move on and be what God wants us to be. We've been journeying with Jesus for the last uh, six months. Since January, we've started a journey to Jerusalem, and this came out of Luke chapter 9, verse 41, or 51, where he said, 41, where he said, sorry, 51, where he says he resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem, meaning that he had gone all the way up to near the end of chapter 9 of Luke, um, getting into ministry, calling his disciples, performing some miraculous things, and all of a sudden it was like, it's time to start heading towards Jerusalem. There's a task that God had in mind for him to do. It involved a cross. Uh, by the way, if you don't have a little piece of paper, if you missed the three tables that are sitting outside the doorways and it says, please take one, you can sneak out as I'm talking and go grab one of these if you'd like to. Not a mass exodus, but, you know, just sort of sneak. So far, we've uh, watched Jesus meander from the villages in Galilee and going through uh, Samaria, uh, not avoiding the, the different kinds of ethnic groups that other people despised. He's criticized and challenged the religious leaders of the day because they were hypocrites. They were proud. They were actually sometimes just downright evil taking advantage of widows and orphans. And we've watched him um, chastise these religious leaders because of their hypocrisy. We've had our eyes open to new ways of thinking and new revelations about the kingdom of God. And we've seen what Jesus wants to see in the life of his followers. So he, all the way along, he is telling us what he expects to see. If you're following him, what should that look like? It's not a half-hearted following that he's looking for. He's looking for people that are all in. Baptism is not the end of the journey. It's the beginning of the journey. It's where you start to say, yes, I, I want to declare that I'm a follower of Jesus. And that's where it starts. And it only gets better after that. So now we stand before the very reason for Jesus coming in the first place. The cross. Luke 22 uh, is the last chapter before the crucifixion event begins to take place. And um, I'm not going there. I'm going to stay in this chapter, which is the Lord's Supper, the betrayal, and then some final teachings of Jesus. And then I want to end up with a, a challenge. And then that's what this paper involves. If you have a pen or a pencil handy, you'll probably need that along the way. So if you want to follow along in your Bibles, Luke chapter 22, beginning at verse 1, I'm going to take uh, most of this chapter, and then I want to kind of wrap things up today. The festival of unleavened bread, which is also called Passover, was approaching. The leading priests and teachers of religious law were plotting how to kill Jesus, but they were afraid of the people's reaction. The Passover where... <laughs> Reminded people of a moment in time where God saved his people from, from sure death. And what were the religious leaders doing? Plotting somebody's death. They wanted to get rid of Jesus. 
You know, they didn't bother too much with him when he was just healing people and on the fringes and feeding the masses out on the shores of Galilee. He was more of a curiosity to the people at this time. But now he started pointing fingers at them, uh, showing their hypocrisy and their ungodly practices. And they knew they had to silence him at all costs, but they couldn't figure out how to get close to him because he was always surrounded by people that were just mesmerized by his teachings. They'd never heard someone teach with such authority before. Jesus was humble, and they were proud. The people could see the contrast between those who professed to be religious leaders and one who actually was a religious leader. Jesus was poor, and they were quite wealthy. Jesus associated with the poor and the diseased, the widows, the sinners, the very people that these religious leaders were avoiding. Jesus set people free from their bondage. And they put people into bondage through their religious rules, their manipulation of truth, their avarice, and their desire for personal enrichment. Jesus knew the one he served, whereas the religious leaders demonstrated over and over and over they didn't really know the God they professed to serve. And people feared the religious leaders for what they could do to them, but people loved Jesus for what he could do for them. Well, you know... People don't change a lot. And there's still people today who are very religious people, very rules-based people, very legalistic in their outlook, very unbridled in their judgment of others, constant criticism of fellow believers. They demand that everyone conform to their way of thinking. And I've been doing some research in history, uh, religious history, over the past several hundreds of years, and I can tell you it turns one's stomach about what has done, been done in the name of religion for centuries by people who didn't know God but were religious. Verse 3 says, Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' disciples, and he went to the leading priests and the captains of the temple guard to discuss the best way to betray Jesus to them. It's a curious verse. What was Judas doing all of this time? For three years he followed Jesus. And at the end he proved that he wasn't really one of them. He was always with them, but never really bought in. Never really committed. Never really was sold out to Jesus. Maybe he had other hopes or dreams that Jesus would become this amazing political leader, that he would cast out the Roman Empire. But that's not why Jesus came. Maybe Judas couldn't handle that. Maybe he decided enough is enough. I'm going home and I can make a few bucks on the side. So he was the open door for the religious leaders. He finally found a way to, to get to Jesus through his inner circle. But the curious part about this to me, and I don't know if you've thought about this as you read through these passages, but I would say it this way, don't be afraid that Satan will simply come and enter any person he chooses at any time. It says, Satan entered into Judas Iscariot. Satan doesn't have the freedom to do that to just anybody. He does that to people who are open to him, who open a door to him, who, who let him in, who invite him in, who have evil intentions. He, he doesn't have the freedom to 
circumvent the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit is present in the life of a believer, there's no entry point available to Satan. Satan will only enter those who are open to him, to those who provide him a point of entry. This can be done, you know, through playing with magic spells, Ouija boards, using mediums to bring up spirits from the past, playing with other New Age spiritual practices like using crystals and magic stones that are somehow supposed to give energy and healing. Folks, these are just rocks. I got a beautiful rock. Where did I put it? I think I have it somewhere. Here's my beautiful rock. This is soapstone. I've been carrying it around because I just like really like earthy kind of things. And uh, I'm going to make something really beautiful out of the rest of this. This is just a chunk that came off. And you know, I looked up. This is supposed to give me healing. I got you know, beads here. And I'm like, you know what? These are just rocks. But somehow people think that you can worship the creation instead of the creator. I don't worship what God created. I worship the God, the creator. Don't bow down to idols, things made from rocks and stones and wood and metal and call them a God. They have no power. That's how Satan gets entry. When you turn your back on God and turn it to other things that you put your trust and hope in. So stop it. I'll just say it. This disciple Judas decides to betray Jesus, to turn to the darkness, to abandon all that Christ had taught him for the past three years and embrace trickery and deceit and selfish ambition and violence against the one person who has shown him true love. And they were delighted, the Bible says. They were delighted and they promised to give him money. How much did they give him? 30 pieces of silver. That's like a... Years worth of wages or something like that. So he agreed and he began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus so they could arrest him when the crowds weren't around. They were afraid of the people who saw through their trickery. Of course, they wanted their dirty deeds to be done at night under the cover of darkness when everyone else would have been safe at home. This particular time, it was a festival, it was a feast. Everyone was at home with family, had big banquets, lots of food. Passover was happening, happening and... They were trying to get rid of the one person in all of history that could save their soul and change their hardened heart of stone to a heart of flesh. These people were blinded by selfish ambition, by greed, by religious ritual. They didn't like being challenged or exposed by Jesus. And this is why they they wanted to get rid of him. They didn't understand that this Passover time it all pointed to Jesus. From the very beginning, in, in, in Egypt, when there was a Passover lamb slaughtered for the sin, for, to prevent the death of the people inside the household, it pointed to Jesus. And now, 2,000, 3,000 years later, after that event, it was coming to be. So verse 7 says, The festival of unleavened bread arrived when the Passover lamb is sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John ahead and said, Go to prepare the Passover meal so we can eat it together. Well, where do you want us to prepare it, they asked him. He says, well, as soon as you enter Jerusalem, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him. At the house he enters, say to the owner, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? And he will take you upstairs to a large room that is already set up, and that's where you should prepare our meal. And they went off to the city, found everything exactly like Jesus had said, and they prepared the Passover meal there. So if the word Passover meal is new to you, there is 
a time where people, Jesus, sorry, God's people, the Jews, were enslaved in Egypt. Uh, Joseph had gone there earlier. All of his brothers had ended up there because of a, a famine and drought in the land. They settled. They, they grew. And the Egyptian rulers thought that they were getting too numerous and could be a threat, so they enslaved them. Moses comes along, is sent back to Egypt, and to convince Pharaoh that it was time to let God's people go, there were ten plagues. And the last of the ten plagues was the most serious, and this is when the angel of death was going to come and kill the firstborn of every household and of the animals. But if you found a lamb and you'd killed it and put the blood of the lamb over the doorpost, the top and the sides, the angel of death would pass over your home and no one would be touched. It was all pointing to Jesus. So from that event, every year throughout the history of the Jewish people, they held a Passover meal to remember that the angel of death passed over the household of those that had faith and put the blood of the lamb over the doorposts. What do you do as a family each Easter or Christmas? What do you do to commemorate what God has done in, in your life? Provided a son, provided a savior, resurrection. Do you as a family, do you have a tradition like the Jewish people every year? Certain traditions because they didn't want to ever forget. Do you also carry out traditions in your home? A serious time, a holy time, the time to be quiet, to sit together, to, to remember, to celebrate the goodness of God? I suspect that after a few generations of this Passover feast with the Jewish people, it became more of a social event, a cute tradition, an emotional death of an angel passing over. Maybe it wasn't so important anymore. It's like party time. Maybe they forgot the meaning of it, but it was going to come back in a very harsh and real way when they saw three crosses on a hill. So Jesus steps in at this particular Passover meal and puts fresh meaning all over again into an ancient ritual. Verse, 22, uh, verse 14 of chapter 22, it says, When the time came, Jesus said to the apostles, and they sat down together at the table, and he said, I've been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Jesus wasn't caught off guard by the suffering he was about to endure. It's clearly outlined in Psalm 22 and in Isaiah 55 and other chapters throughout the Scriptures. He knew these places by heart. He knew what was going to happen. He knew the routine, how he would be arrested, how he would be betrayed, how he would be beaten, how he would be crucified, and then how he would be raised from the dead. But the suffering was about to begin, and he wanted to be with his friends at this one last time. He was going to become sin for us. He was going to be betrayed and abandoned by his closest friends. He was going to have to carry the penalty of our sins on the cross. These would be new experiences for him. In some ways, the spiritual and emotional pain would outshadow the physical pain. And put all together, he would be overcome. He would experience a total breakdown in every possible way on the cross. 
And even though he had told his disciples many times throughout the, all these the gospel passages, he told them, I'm going to have to suffer, and after three days, you know, I'm going to be raised in the dead. going, yeah, 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 and I'll suffer and raise again. They just, it just went, whew, whew. they didn't catch what he was saying until now, the betrayal and every, the, the crucifixion. Now it's all making sense. Somehow it was like they had blinders on. Three years of teaching and sharing life, revealing to them his father, revealing to them about the kingdom. This moment that Jesus had with his disciples was a very special moment. This was an, an intimate moment with the 12 disciples. It was, it was kind of like their graduation celebration dinner together. Three years in the school of Jesus, boys, this is your graduation night. Because after this, you won't have me. You got to be strong. It would be the most meaningful Passover meal Jesus and the disciples would ever have together. It was truly a last supper for them as a group, though one of them was a betrayer to the rest of them. So it says in verse 17, he took the wine and he gave thanks for God, to God for it. Then he said, take this and share it among yourselves, for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God would come at his resurrection. At his defeat of death and hell and all of that, it, that's when he, he demonstrated the power of, in his majesty that, that he had all along, but had been hidden because, he, because of his humanity. He was going to prove that every word he said for the last three years of his ministry was true. He would overcome death and hell. He would physically walk among his people and be seated at the right hand of God when he ascended to heaven until his appointed time to come back. Everything he said was true. And there's still one more point that has yet to be fulfilled. He's coming back. He came once the first time. He's coming back a second time. Verse 18 is a curious verse to me in exactly what Christ is referring to. I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. The, the, the um, commentators are a little bit divided over what this means. Maybe he would drink wine after he was with the disciples again, after the resurrection. Maybe this is a figure of speech. Maybe this is about celebration. We're not quite sure. But then he takes verse 19. He took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it and he broke it into pieces, which we will do next, next Sunday, first Sunday of the month. We'll have communion together. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took another cup of wine and he said, this cup is a new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. I wonder if he paused before he said, but here at this table, sitting among us as a friend is a man who will betray me. For it has been determined that the Son of Man must die, but what sorrow awaits for the one who betrays him? Jesus, Jesus knew all along which one of the twelve would turn on him, would stab him in the back, would greedily take the money and walk away from the others. But he loved them anyway. The disciples began to ask each other which of them would ever do such a thing. So Jesus came to serve, he came to teach, he came to love, to forgive, to heal, to set free those who were in bondage, he came to die, to be a sacrificial lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world for those who believe. 
When you have a picture of the 12 disciples and one who walks away, you have kind of a, a small view of reality that not everyone will be saved. Not everyone will end up where they want to be at the beginning. Not everyone will place their faith in the Son of God who offers His life for us, and we in turn offer our lives in return out of our gratitude. The ones who deny themselves and take up their own cross daily and follow Him will be welcomed into His kingdom. Eleven of the disciples hung in there. They stuck it out. They proved faithful. They weren't half-hearted. They were all in, and they were all rewarded for their faithfulness. You have to kind of wonder what was going through the minds of the disciples. At least I do. When you read these passages, you know, you can just read it and be done. Oh, I did my reading today. Like, wait, wait a minute. Like, what's going on? They start to ask each other, are, are you the betrayer? Are you the guy? No, no, it's not me. I would never do such a thing. And Judas probably said the same. No, what are you, crazy? I've been with, I'm one of you. Well, he wasn't, Really? And then it says they started arguing about who would be the biggest influencer in the kingdom of God. Who would be the greatest? Who would have the most power? Who would sit at Christ's right hand and his left hand? How do they get from having the party time, the celebration of the Lord's Supper, to someone's going to betray me? What? Not me. I'm going to be like, I'm going to be like number one. You can be like number two, and, and you can serve me. And... Um, they began to argue amongst themselves, it says, about who would be the greatest among them. And Jesus said, in this world, the kings and great men lord it over their people, yet they are called friends of the people. You know, that's to be expected, right? Everyone who's got lots of money, lots of, they're the big boss, they got all the employees, they got the big corporations, they got the fancy, they got all the power, influence. Of course they want to eat at the best restaurants. Of course they want to drive the biggest cars. Of course they want the biggest house. Of course they want the perks. You know, walk into all the lounges and all those kinds of things and have people open doors for them. Oh, can I carry that for you? It's, it's nice to be that kind of a person. But that's not Jesus' way. That's the world's way. And Jesus says, in my kingdom, it ain't going to be like that. He didn't use the word ain't, but... Um, I'm just sort of, you know, being colloquial at this point. You want to be important, he says? Pick up a mop. You want to have power? Scrub the floor. Acknowledge other people's efforts. Change the diapers. Point out other people's successes. Show gratitude and appreciation for what other people do. You want to be great? Go to the back of the line. He shook things up. In Luke chapter 10, we read this some months ago. Behold, he says, I have given you the power to tread upon serpents and scorpions and under, upon the full force of the enemy and nothing will harm you. He sent them out to do miraculous things, to heal people, to cast out demons. And, and they come back and he's saying, look, look what the power I gave you. you. You tread on serpents and on scorpions and nothing harmed you. Nevertheless, he says, do not rejoice because the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice because your names are written in heaven. He says, don't get sucked into the dangers of power and authority but humbly rejoice instead in your salvation. If Jesus has invited you into his kingdom, 
It's Jesus that has the power, not us. Jesus that, that makes demons flee, not us. We are tools, we're instruments in his hands. We obediently do what he asks of us, but we are not the powerful. We have someone in us who is the powerful one. If you seek recognition and status in Jesus' kingdom, you're on the wrong track. I'm going to use that word ain't again. It ain't going to work. How many people in the last 10 years, super big pastors of super big churches have fallen hard in the last 10 years? Dozens. Because they got sucked into the power and the influence and the bigness of everything and the people that submitted to them. They weren't the humble servant that Jesus showed us. Jesus demonstrates for us how a leader in his kingdom serves others. He, he did not come to be served, but to be poured out as an offering, emptying himself of all pride and arrogance and selfish ambition and greed. You think you're called to special service? You think you've got a special assignment from God to do special things? You don't. We're all the same. We're all obedient to what God asks, and no one has a higher purpose or a higher power or a higher calling. We serve the one who was higher and above all authority and names, and everybody bows to him, not to us. We're just brothers and sisters in Christ doing what God asks us to do. We cannot mix the world's ways with kingdom ways and get God's results. I'll say that again. We cannot mix the world's ways with kingdom ways and get God's results. We think we need to blog and promote and put a spin on and use the world's tricks to grow our ministries. We don't. You want to, you want to be effective as a church? Let the power of the Spirit do what the Spirit. Let's unleash the power of God's Spirit to do what He wants to do in us and our city will be transformed. No tricks, no blogs, no fancy this or that. Just the power of the Spirit transforming normal people's lives and we will change the city. We have to handle whatever assignment Jesus gives us with great care, letting his Spirit guide us in his ways in order to achieve his results. The world's ways lead to corruption and misuse of power, greed, and pride. So what is Luke Nine. I think out of all the chapters that we read from beginning uh, Luke chapter 9 until 22, the verse that stands out to me is, if anyone, Jesus said, will come to me, let him do what? Deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. We're all on a spiritual journey. We're all followers of Christ. Sometimes it's a, a physical journey too. Sometimes he's got to move you from where you are to where he wants you to be. Sometimes it means a change of a job. Sometimes it's a relocation of where you are because he, he has plans for you. He wants to do amazing things through you and you are his servant to do his bidding in his time and in his place. Does he have the freedom to do that with you? He's going to take us from where we are to where he is in every area of our life. He will reorient our thinking. He will change our methodology. He will reshape our strategy. He will replace our worldview so that we begin to think and sound and act like Jesus. That's how a world gets impacted. There's a um, pastor named John Mark Comer. Um, go ahead and buy his books, read his, his stuff online, listen to what he's saying. Here's some of the things that he says. Today, 
Everything we hear about is, sorry, today everything we hear about is about self. Self has become the new God, the new spiritual authority, the new morality. Whatever you think is right must be right for you. This puts an enormous responsibility on yourself, one that you were not designed to bear. In other words, what you think is right has to be right. Because you've got to be true to yourself. The world tells us that self is to be indulged and pampered and explored and expressed, but not disciplined or restrained. We are supposed to give in to every passion rather than exert any self-control. And look where that's got our society today. Everybody, the Bible says this over and over and over. People do what is right in their own eyes. They do everything that's right in their own eyes. They are their own judge. They are their own um, cheering squad. They are their own to be true to their self, but they don't regard the impact that their decisions have on others. John Mark Comer again says, self must discover itself, defend its fragile identity and validate itself. This, new, this is a new religion on the self. Desire is sacred, and the ultimate sin is to not follow your heart. Be true to yourself is the worst advice you can give. Because which self are you being true to? The Bible says there's two kinds of self. There's a spiritual self and the flesh, fleshly self. Right now, everyone wants to promote what their flesh wants, their desires want. Are you going to be true to the one that Jesus created you to be or the one that the world tells you to be? Because there's a battle between the two selves. Your bad self or the flesh will tell you to be defined uh, by who you want to sleep with. Your bad self will tell you, uh, leads you into self-destructive indulgences, whether it's food or Netflix or sports or new experiences or recognition, sex, porn, power. The fleshly self will take you wherever you want to go. No one, don't judge me. Have you ever heard that? Don't judge me. Going, yeah, I can just tell you where it's going. I've been in ministry long enough to know where this road leads. I've helped many people in crisis out of the decisions that they have found themselves into because they followed their self. Comer says, giving in to the desires of our flesh doesn't lead to freedom and life, but instead slavery. And in the worst case scenario, addiction, which is a prolonged suicide by pleasure. Do not allow your bad self to divert your attention from what is best and good and godly and what is healthy for life and happiness. And instead, turn your attention to what is worthless and substandard and fake. The bad self says pleasure. Pleasure. And the pleasure gives you, what's the word? What's the, the medical term? Is dopamine? Pleasure is about dopamine, the next hit in the next moment. You just need another strike of dopamine, and another hit. The good self isn't seeking pleasure, it's seeking happiness. Happiness is about, the other word is serotonin, a deep contentment over a long period of time. Do you want the easy hit in the next moment, pleasure, or do you want... Deep contentment over a long period of time with happiness. Bad self says pleasure is about what we want. Good self says happiness is about freedom, 
from having to want, being content. Happiness today has become about feeling good in this society, but it's not about being good because everybody does what's in their own eyes. One last thing. Comer says our strongest desire really are not the same as our deepest desires. We were created in the image of God, not in the image of Adonis and Aphrodite. Our deepest desire is to ache for God, to live in his love and to have peace. Don't let immediate pleasure divert you from achieving your deepest desires. So when Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me, he showed us what that looked like. He could have done anything he wanted. He had the power to do anything he wanted with anyone he wanted on those three years of ministry, but he chose instead to steadfastly look to the cross. He had a goal in mind. He had a destiny in mind, and the, the, the future of the entire human race depended on his obedience to deny himself, to take up his cross, and to be obedient to the Father who gave him three days later resurrection from the dead and sat him down higher above anyone else has ever been. He's in heaven waiting to come back. There may be things in your life that you need to leave behind in order to follow Jesus completely. There may be things in your life today that are stopping you from experiencing the joy and the satisfaction that Christ intended for you to have. Stuff that you're holding on to because it's pleasurable. It, it gives you that dopamine uh, effect. But, it, but, but you're missing happiness. You're going for the next hit of dopamine, but you're, you've lost all your serotonin. You're not, you're not happy. In what Life is just fleeting. It's, 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 it's headed in the wrong direction. You feel like things are out of control. Things are not what you thought they are going to be. It's because we're chasing after what cannot meet our deepest desire, our ache for God to live in his love and to have his peace. I don't know if you've heard of the old um, church father, St. Basil the Great. He said this about baptism and about following Christ. A person who wishes to become the Lord's disciple must repudiate a human obligation, however honorable it may appear, if it slows us ever so slightly in giving the wholehearted obedience we owe to God. In other words, if there's anything in your life, anything in my life that prevents me from fully following Christ, I gotta let it go. It's coming in between me and my relationship with God. So on that piece of paper that I asked you to, to grab, you don't have to do this, but sometimes doing something physical represents a spiritual thing that's happening here. This baptism is a symbol of what's happened, of the transformation in somebody's life. It's an, and it's an example, a physical thing that shows a spiritual transformation. On that piece of paper, um, I'm not actually going to read them, but what I'd like you to do is write something on there, if you want. One thing that you know is preventing you from really fully following Christ. One thing that is stopping you from being from denying yourself, you, you just keep coming back to this. You want to be rid of this. It's controlling too much of your life. It's, it's got too much of your attention. It's, 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 it's something you think about all the time, but you know it's not what God 
once in your life. It's not honoring to God. And that may be a small thing. It may be a big thing. If you want to take that, write that down on a piece of paper and fold it, and bring it to the altar before the cross. Just walk up, leave it on the table, and say, Christ, I know you took all my sin, all my failure, all of my regrets, all of my shame, and nailed them to the cross. You died for my sin, that I would have life and happiness. And I want to recommit my life to being a true follower of you, not a half-hearted follower, not a semi-follower, but a full, all-in follower. If you want to do that, we're going to be singing a song now at the end of our service, to conclude our service. During that song time as we sing, if you want to just walk up, drop your, drop your paper on the table and say, I want to leave this on the altar. God, help me to overcome this with your power that I could have the life that you intended me to have. You do that. I'm going to ask our worship team to come up. Haven't they been doing a fantastic job today? Finally got Nathan on the cello. They are going to lead us into the presence of God through worship. Would you stand with us as we sing? And if God is prompting you to make some changes in your life, to be all in for him, bring that paper to the altar and ask God to help you to be the person he needs you to be today.